Section 11 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 11. The Deserted House by Ernest Theodore Amadeus Hoffman, Part 1. You know already that I spent the greater part of last summer in X, began Theodore. The many old friends and acquaintances I found there, the free, jovial life, the manifold artistic and intellectual interests, all these combined to keep me in that city. I was happy as never before, and found rich nourishment for my old fondness for wandering alone through the streets, stopping to enjoy every picture in the shop windows, every placard on the walls, or watching the passers-by and choosing some one or the other of them to cast his horoscope secretly to myself. There is one broad avenue leading to the blank gate, and lined with handsome buildings of all descriptions, which is the meeting-place of the rich and fashionable world. The shops which occupy the ground floor of the tall palaces are devoted to the trade in articles of luxury, and the apartments above are the dwellings of people of wealth and position. The aristocratic hotels are to be found in this avenue. The palaces of the foreign ambassadors are there, and you can easily imagine that such a street would be the center of the city's life and gaiety. I had wandered through the avenue several times, when one day my attention was caught by a house which contrasted strangely with the others surrounding it. Picture to yourselves a low building, but four windows broad, crowded in between two tall, handsome structures. Its one upper story was a little higher than the tops of the ground-floor windows of its neighbors. Its roof was dilapidated, its windows patched with paper, its discolored walls spoke of years of neglect. You can imagine how strange such a house must have looked in this street of wealth and fashion. Looking at it more attentively, I perceived that the windows of the upper story were tightly closed and curtained, and that a wall had been built to hide the windows of the ground floor. The entrance gate, a little to one side, served also as a doorway for the building, but I could find no sign of latch, lock, nor even a bell on this gate. I was convinced that the house must be unoccupied, for at whatever hour of the day I happened to be passing, I had never seen the faintest signs of life about it. You all, the good comrades of my youth, know that I have been prone to consider myself a sort of clairvoyant, claiming to have glimpses of a strange world of wonders, a world which you, with your hard common sense, would attempt to deny or laugh away. I confess that I have often lost myself in mysteries which after all turned out to be no mysteries at all. 
and it looked at first as if this was to happen to me and the matter of the deserted house, that strange house which drew my steps and my thoughts to itself with a power that surprised me. But the point of my story will prove to you that I am right in asserting that I know more than you do. Listen now to what I'm about to tell you. One day, at the hour in which the fashionable world is accustomed to promenade up and down the avenue, I stood as usual before the deserted house, lost in thought. Suddenly I felt, without looking up, that someone had stopped beside me, fixing his eyes on me. It was Count P., who told me that the old house contained nothing more mysterious than a cake bakery belonging to the pastry cook whose handsome shop adjoined the old structure. The windows of the ground floor were walled up to give protection to the ovens, and the heavy curtains of the upper story were to keep the sunlight from the wares laid out there. When the Count informed me of this, I felt as if a bucket of cold water had been suddenly thrown over me. But I could not believe in this story of the cake and candy factory. Through some strange freak of the imagination, I felt as a child feels when some fairy tale has been told it to conceal the truth it suspects. I scolded myself for a silly fool, the house remained unaltered in its appearance, and the visions faded in my brain, until one day a chance incident woke them to life again. I was wandering through the avenue as usual, and as I passed the deserted house I could not resist a hasty glance at its close-curtained upper windows. But as I looked at it, the curtain on the last window near the pastry shop began to move. A hand, an arm, came out from between its folds. I took my opera glass from my pocket and saw a beautifully formed woman's hand, on the little finger of which a large diamond sparkled in unusual brilliancy. A rich bracelet glittered on the white rounded arm. The hand set a tall, oddly formed crystal bottle on the window ledge and disappeared again behind the curtain. I stopped as if frozen to stone. A weirdly pleasurable sensation, mingled with awe, streamed through my being with the warmth of an electric current. I stared up at the mysterious window, and a sigh of longing arose from the very depths of my heart. When I came to myself again, I was angered to find that I was surrounded by a crowd which stood gazing up at the window with curious faces. I stole away inconspicuously, and the demon of all things prosaic whispered to me that what I had just seen was the rich pastry cook's wife, in her Sunday adornment, placing an empty bottle, used for rose water or the like, on the window sill. Nothing very weird about this. Suddenly a most sensible thought came to me. 
I turned and entered the shining mirror-walled shop of the pastry cook. Blowing the steaming foam from my cup of chocolate, I remarked, You have a very useful addition to your establishment next door. The man leaned over his counter and looked at me with a questioning smile, as if he did not understand me. I repeated that, in my opinion, he had been very clever to set his bakery in the neighboring house, although the deserted appearance of the building was a strange sight in its contrasting surroundings. "'Why, sir?' began the pastry-cook. "'Who told you that the house next door belongs to us? Unfortunately, Every attempt on our part to acquire it has been in vain, and I fancy it is all the better so, for there is something queer about the place. You can imagine, dear friends, how interested I became upon hearing these words, and that I begged the man to tell me more about the house. I do not know anything very definite, sir, he said. All that we know for a certainty is that the house belongs to the Countess S., who lives on her estates and has not been to the city for years. This house, so they tell me, stood in its present shape before any of the handsome buildings were raised, which are now the pride of our avenue, and in all these years there has been nothing done to it except to keep it from actual decay. Two living creatures alone dwell there, an aged misanthrope of a steward and his melancholy dog, which occasionally howls at the moon from the back courtyard. According to the general story, the deserted house is haunted. In very truth, my brother, who is the owner of this shop, and myself have often, when our business kept us awake during the silence of the night, heard strange sounds from the other side of the walls. There was a rumbling and a scraping that frightened us both. And not very long ago, we heard one night a strange singing, which I could not describe to you. It was evidently the voice of an old woman but the tones were so sharp and clear, and ran up to the top of the scale in cadences and long trills, the like of which I have never heard before, although I have heard many singers in many lands. It seemed to be a French song, but I am not quite sure of that, for I could not listen long to the mad ghostly singing. It made the hair stand erect on my head and at times, after the street noises are quiet, we can hear deep sighs, and sometimes a mad laugh, which seemed to come out of the earth. But if you lay your ear to the wall in our back room, you can hear that the noises come from the house next door. He led me into the back room and pointed through the window. And do you see that iron chimney coming out of the wall there? It smokes so heavily sometimes, even in summer, when there are no fires used, that my brother has often quarreled with the old steward about it, fearing danger. 
but the old man excuses himself by saying that he was cooking his food. Heaven knows what the queer creature may eat, for often, when the pipe is smoking heavily, a strange and queer smell can be smelled all over the house. The glass doors of the shop creaked in opening. The pastry cook hurried into the front room, and when he had nodded to the figure now entering, he threw a meaning glance at me. I understood him perfectly. Who else could this strange guest be but the steward who had charge of the mysterious house? Imagine a thin little man with a face the color of a mummy, with a sharp nose, tight-set lips, green cat's eyes, and a crazy smile. His hair dressed in the old-fashioned style, with a high toupee and a bag at the back, and heavily powdered. He wore a faded old brown coat, which was carefully brushed, gray stockings, and broad, flat-toed shoes with buckles. And imagine further that in spite of his meagerness, this little person is robustly built with huge fists and long, strong fingers, and that he walks into the shop counter with a strong, firm step, smiling his imbecile smile and whining out, a couple of candied oranges, a couple of macaroons, a couple of sugared chestnuts. The pastry cook smiled at me and then spoke to the old man. You do not seem to be quite well. Yes, yes, old age, old age, it takes the strength from our limbs. The old man's expression did not change, but his voice went up. Old age? Old age? Lose strength? Grow weak? Oh, ho! And with this he clapped his hands together until the joints cracked and sprang high up into the air until the entire shop trembled and the glass vessels on the walls and counters rattled and shook. But in the same moment a hideous screaming was heard. The old man had stepped on his black dog, which, creeping in behind him, had laid itself at his feet on the floor. Devilish beast, dog of hell, groaned the old man in his former miserable tone, opening his bag and giving the dog a large macaroon. The dog, which had burst out into a cry of distress that was truly human, was quiet at once, sat down on its haunches, and gnawed at the macaroon like a squirrel. When it had finished its tidbit, the old man had also finished the packing up and putting away of his purchases. "'Good night, honored neighbor,' he spoke, taking the hand of the pastry cook and pressing it until the latter cried aloud in pain. "'The weak old man wishes you a good night, most honorable sir neighbor.' he repeated, and then walked from the shop, 
followed closely by his black dog. The old man did not seem to have noticed me at all. I was quite dumbfounded in my astonishment. "'There, you see,' began the pastry-cook. "'This is the way he acts when he comes in here, two or three times a month it is. But I can get nothing out of him except the fact that he was the former valet of Count S., that he is now in charge of this house here, and that every day, for many years now, he expects the arrival of his master's family.' The hour was now come when fashion demanded that the elegant world of the city should assemble in this attractive shop. The doors opened incessantly, the place was thronged, and I could ask no further questions. This much I knew, that Count P.'s information about the ownership and the use of the house were not correct, also that the old steward in spite of his denial, was not living alone there, and that some mystery was hidden behind its discolored walls. How should I combine the story of the strange and gruesome singing with the appearance of the beautiful arm at the window? That arm could not be part of the wrinkled body of an old woman. The singing, according to the pastry cook's story, could not come from the throat of a blooming and youthful maiden. I decided in favor of the arm, as it was easy to explain to myself that some trick of acoustics had made the voice sound sharp and old, or that it had appeared so only in the pastry cook's fear-distorted imagination. Then I thought of the smoke— the strange odors, the oddly formed crystal bottle that I had seen, and soon the vision of a beautiful creature held enthralled by fatal magic stood as if alive before my mental vision. The old man became a wizard, who, perhaps quite independently of the family he served, had set up his devil's kitchen in the deserted house. My imagination had begun to work, and in my dreams that night I saw clearly the hand with the sparkling diamond on its finger, the arm with the shining bracelet. From out thin gray mists there appeared a sweet face with sadly imploring blue eyes, then the entire exquisite figure of a beautiful girl and I saw that what I had thought was mist was the fine steam flowing out in circles from a crystal bottle held in the hands of the vision. "'Oh, fairest creature of my dreams!' I cried in rapture. "'Reveal to me where thou art, what it is that enthralls thee. "'Ah, I know it! It is black magic that holds thee captive!' Thou art the unhappy slave of that malicious devil who wanders about brown-clad and bewigged in pastry-shops, scattering their wares with his unholy springing and feeding his demon dog on macaroons after they have howled out a satanic measure in five-eighth time. 
Oh, I know it all, thou fair and charming vision. The diamond is the reflection of the fire of thy heart. But that bracelet about thine arm is a link of the chain which the brown-clad one says is a magnetic chain. Do not believe it, O glorious one. See how it shines in the blue fire from the retort. One moment more and thou art free. And now, O maiden, open thy rosebud mouth and tell me. In this moment, a gnarled fist leaped over my shoulder and clutched at the crystal bottle, which sprang into a thousand pieces in the air. With a faint, sad moan, the charming vision faded into the blackness of the night. When morning came to put an end to my dreaming, I hurried through the avenue, seeking the deserted house as usual, and I saw something glistening in the last window of the upper story. Coming nearer, I noticed that the outer blind had been drawn quite up and the inner curtain slightly opened. The sparkle of a diamond met my eye. Oh, kind heaven, the face of my dream looked at me, gently imploring from above the rounded arm on which her head was resting. But how was it possible to stand still in the moving crowd without attracting attention? Suddenly I caught sight of the benches placed in the gravel walk in the center of the avenue, and I saw that one of them was directly opposite the house. I sprang over to it, and leaning over its back, I could stare up at the mysterious window undisturbed. Yes, it was she, the charming maiden of my dream. But her eye did not seem to seek me, as I had at first thought. Her glance was cold and unfocused, and had it not been for an occasional motion of the hand and arm, I might have thought that I was looking at a cleverly painted picture. I was so lost in my adoration of the mysterious being in the window, so aroused and excited throughout all my nerve centers, that I did not hear the shrill voice of an Italian street hawker who had been offering me his wares for some time. Finally, he touched me on the arm. I turned hastily and commanded him to let me alone. But he did not cease his entreaties, asserting that he had earned nothing today and begging me to buy some small trifle from him. Full of impatience to get rid of him, I put my hand in my pocket, with the words, I have more beautiful things here. He opened the under drawer of his box and held out to me a little round pocket mirror. In it, as he held it up before my face, I could see the deserted house behind me, the window, and the sweet face of my vision there. I bought the little mirror at once, for I saw that it would make it possible for me to sit comfortable and inconspicuously, and yet watch the window. The longer I looked at the reflection in the glass, 
the more I fell captive to a weird and quite indescribable sensation, which I might almost call a waking dream. It was as if a lethargy had lamed my eyes, holding them fastened on the glass beyond my power to loosen them. And now at last the beautiful eyes of the fair vision looked at me, her glance sought mine, and shone deep down into my heart. "'You have a pretty little mirror there,' said a voice beside me. I awoke from my dream and was not a little confused when I saw smiling faces looking at me from either side. Several persons had sat down upon the bench, and it was quite certain that my staring into the window and probably my strange expression had afforded them great cause for amusement. "'You have a pretty little mirror there,' repeated the man, as I did not answer him. His glance said more, and asked without words the reason of my staring so oddly into the little glass. He was an elderly man, neatly dressed, and his voice and eyes were so full of good nature that I could not refuse him my confidence. I told him that I had been looking in the mirror at the picture of a beautiful maiden who was sitting at a window of the deserted house. I went even farther. I asked the old man if he had not seen the fair face himself. Over there? In the old house? In the last window? He repeated my questions in a tone of surprise. Yes, yes, I exclaimed. The old man smiled and answered, Well, well, that was a strange delusion. My old eyes. Thank heaven for my old eyes. Yes, yes, sir. I saw a pretty face in the window there with my own eyes, but it seemed to me to be an excellently well-painted oil portrait. I turned quickly and looked toward the window. There was no one there, and the blind had been pulled down. Yes, continued the old man. Yes, sir. Now it is too late to make sure of the matter, for just now the servant, who, as I know, lives there alone in the house of the Countess S., took the picture away from the window after he had dusted it and let down the blinds. Was it then surely a picture? I asked again in bewilderment. You can trust my eyes, replied the old man. The optical delusion was strengthened by your seeing only the reflection in the mirror. And when I was in your years, it was easy enough for my fancy to call up the picture of a beautiful maiden. But the hand and arm moved, I exclaimed. Oh, yes, they moved, indeed, they moved, said the old man, smiling, as he patted me on the shoulder. Then he arose to go, and bowing politely, closed his remarks with the words, Beware of mirrors which can lie so vividly. Your obedient servant, sir. 
you can imagine how I felt when I saw that he looked upon me as a foolish fantast. I hurried home full of anger and disgust, and promised myself that I would not think of the mysterious house. But I placed the mirror on my dressing table that I might bind my cravat before it. And thus it happened one day, when I was about to utilize it for this important business, that its glass seemed dull, and that I took it up and breathed on it to rub it bright again. My heart seemed to stand still. Every fiber in me trembled in delightful awe. Yes, that is all the name I can find for the feeling that came over me when, as my breath clouded the little mirror, I saw the beautiful face of my dreams arise and smile at me through blue mists. You laugh at me? You look upon me as an incorrigible dreamer? Think what you will about it. The fair face looked at me from out of the mirror. But as soon as the clouding vanished, the face vanished in the brightened glass. End of Section 11 The Deserted House, Part 1